Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. Well, good morning again. Hold up your Bibles for a minute. I see some phones. It's okay. It's all right. I get you. I'm with you. Hey, do you know that you're holding in your hands the very Word of God Himself that He left for us? And this is a GPS for life. Now, I don't know how to live life without this thing. I'd be lost in two seconds without this book. You're holding in your hands the best-selling book in the history of mankind. Every year, it's the number one bestseller right here. I'm glad you brought your Bibles because I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 2 right now. John chapter 2. We're going through John verse by verse, just like we did with Revelation. Last week, we saw the beginning of both Jesus' ministry in the calling of six of His 12 disciples. He's going to add them along the way here. And His first of many miracles, which He performed uh, over the nearly three years of his ministry when he turned water into wine that we read about last week at a wedding that he was at. We saw a glimpse of his power at the wedding that he was invited to. We saw Jesus in three roles. We viewed him in three roles last week at the wedding. We saw him as the invited guest. Number one, these, these folks were smart enough to invite Jesus to their wedding. I, that's kind of a joke. They didn't know him yet. He was probably a family member. But they invited him to the guests and the, uh, to the wedding. And then we saw him as Mary's son uh, in, in that role at the wedding. It was interesting to watch their little dialogue. And then we saw him as the provider of needs, where he is the provider of everything we need. Even in this moment, we see him as the provider uh, when he used uh, the water and turned it into wine. And we saw it as a, a greater metaphorical example, taking uncleaned, hand-washing water and turning it into pure wine that brought uh, joy to those who partook. Israel had been attempting to gain God's approval through the works of some 613 laws. Now, God had not given them nearly that many but the Pharisees, in, in a desire to kind of build their little uh, power base, had added, had you know, doubled, and, 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 and I think it's almost tripled the amount of laws in order to appease God and to place themselves as the authority over Israel. They, uh, they, of course, these laws no one could keep. They were unrealistic. Unreal- in fact, even the Pharisees couldn't keep them. They tried but they wanted to hold everybody else to them. When in fact, God doesn't want our sacrifice. He doesn't want us to try and follow these laws that we can't follow anyway. What He wants to give us is grace, and what He wants is obedience in return to His Word. In the first miracle, uh, six of Jesus' disciples, including His inner ring of, of Peter, James, and John, you're going to see as we move forward, those three guys get front row seats to some of the greatest things Jesus ever does. Uh, The others are oftentimes not mentioned. They're not there. But Peter, James, and John get this kind of 
you know, behind-the-stage pass, if you will. They get to see a lot of the things that go on. We're introduced to, uh, all of those guys were introduced to the, the power and the, and the all-knowing God, long, uh, their long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's kind of just starting to pull back this, the layers of this onion. They're getting to know Him over these first few days. If they thought that following Him would be routine or mundane, their beliefs were quickly and radically being changed. can imagine the conversation um, when they were leaving the wedding. Wow, did you see that? <laughs> yeah, that's unbelievable. Man, water into water. How does He do that? Well, as far as we can tell, the wedding went off with a hitch. Pun intended. Listen, folks, the jokes don't get any better. <laughs> don't make me use a laugh track. <laughs> well, they left. Jesus, his, uh, his brothers, along with him and his disciples, and uh, his mother Mary uh, leaves the wedding with him. Uh, and they're headed for the, uh, the fishing village of Capernaum where many of these fishermen turned disciples had lived. And, uh, and worked for generations harvesting fish from the Sea of Galilee. So it's about 25 to 30 miles that they walk as they're leaving the wedding. They're going to head down to Capernaum. Let's read a little bit about this. This beginning of signs, we're talking about the signs of the, the water uh, being made into wine. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed Him. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. During our upcoming Israel trip, uh, we will visit the town of Capernaum. And that's always one of my favorite days to walk into a, a you know, how, how often do you get to walk into a town that is, is 2,500, 2,700 years old and, and that the Lord visited on many occasions? Um, it's a, an old fishing village that, uh, that overlooks the Sea of Galilee where they fished. Uh, Peter's home is right there uh, in the middle somewhere. We're going to look at it closer in a second. Uh, throughout the four Gospels, Capernaum is mentioned <clears throat> excuse me, as a place where the fishermen disciples, including Peter and his family lived. His mother-in-law lived with him. It's where Jesus visited often, and he used it kind of as a retreat or a home base, if you will, for his ministry. We re uh, will read of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law while he's there on one occasion, and then healing many more, it says, it's countless number. Um, it just says many, many more into the night. He just, Jesus just keeps healing people. The line out the door just goes on and on and on. Archaeologists have uncovered several interesting finds in Capernaum that we'll get to see on the tour, and I can't wait to show you and read some Scripture there. First off, they, uh, they've discovered a small neighborhood with rows of small houses, which you can see there. In between those little houses uh, is, are alleyways. They're, they're very laid out, very, uh, laid out very um, uh, succinctly. The alleyways are about six feet apart. They would travel up and down. Uh, on, on this side, um, on the other side, there is a, a temple, and that's how you would uh, go to temple every, every week. One home near the center of the small town drew attention of archaeologists immediately after they uncovered all of this. <clears throat> Allow me to read from you, or for you, 
from the Biblical Archaeology Society's news article from last October. Although, and I quote, although slightly larger than most, the house was simple, with coarse walls and a roof of earth and straw. Like most early Roman period houses, it consisted of a few small rooms clustered around two open courtyards. I would guess that the home, the actual living space in the home, isn't more than about 400 square feet. It's a very tiny little place. They lived uh, on top of each other back then. And then you see the courtyard is surrounded by that little wall that they would go out and they would cook outside and uh, spend a lot of time outside. Despite later um, proving to be one of the most exciting biblical archaeology discoveries, the letter goes on, the house appeared quite ordinary. According to the excavators, however, it is what happened to the house after the middle of the first century A.D. that marked its exceptional and most likely the house of Peter, the home base of Jesus' ministry headquartered in Capernaum. In the years immediately following the ascension of Jesus, the function of the house changed dramatically, they said. The house's main room was completely plastered over from floor to ceiling, a rarity for houses of that day. That was an, an, a very expensive thing that most people couldn't afford. They just left it you know, looking like that. But somebody came along and plastered the walls inside, something they almost never saw. About the same time, the house's pottery, which had previously been household cooking pots and bowls, now consisted entirely of large storage jars and oil lamps. Such radical alterations indicate that the house no longer functioned as a residence, but instead had become a place for communal gatherings. Possibly even the first Christian gatherings a key factor in how Christianity began to spread. As with many biblical archaeology discoveries, often it's the small details that most convince us of the ties to the ancient material that remains to biblical events and characters back then. The building's key role in understanding how Christianity began was confirmed by more than a hundred graffiti scratched into the house church walls. Most of the inscriptions say things like, Lord Jesus Christ, help your servant. Or, Christ, have mercy. They are written in Greek, Syriac, and Hebrew. These are the three common languages of the day. And are sometimes accompanied by etchings of small crosses. And in one case, somebody etched a little fishing boat. The excavators claim that the name of Peter is mentioned in several of the graffiti that they've discovered. Less than 50 yards from this home that we're looking at is the town synagogue that dates back from before Christ to well after Him, a place Jesus clearly taught on numerous occasions. We're going to see some of it, uh, read some of His teachings from that synagogue right there. Uh, the walls had almost all fallen down. Uh, and when they unearthed this, they were stunned to find that this is the actual synagogue that was in Capernaum, and they began to set the stones back on top of each other, and uh, that's about as, as good as they could get. Robbers would come along and steal the stones over the centuries, but uh, you get a pretty good idea of what it looked like. 
Why do I take time to show you all of this? Well, Jesus did a lot of ministry here. We're going to see that in the, in the chapters that, that come, which we'll be reading and looking at. And if you're like me, you're a visual learner. I like to see what, you know, I'm trying to imagine what is it like, you know, and all my childhood I, I wondered, what does Israel look like? Well, I pictured it as a big desert, but it's anything but that. And uh, I like to get my eyes on stuff and look at it and Certainly, I think it's a benefit to all of us. Last week, we looked at Jesus as a provider at the wedding. This week, we'll see Jesus' passion in three examples here. Jesus' passion in three examples. Example number one, we see Jesus cleaning out the temple. We're going to see him clean out the temple. Verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is why they have to leave Capernaum. They didn't stay there long. Passover's coming. Every male adult Jew had to uh, return to Israel to be in obedience to the law and celebrate Passover there. Had to take your animal there so that your family's sins would be forgiven by shedding the blood of your lamb or whatever it is you brought, the oxen. And he found in the temple those who, were, who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. During the Passover days, Jerusalem went from a population of a couple of hundred thousand to well over a million. Some estimates go as high as two million people that are in and around Jerusalem. So it, it was crazy. It was so busy. These were Gentiles largely. These were Gentiles traveling from other countries that had become Jews and followed Judaism, but they were, they were Gentiles, and they would make the long trek over to be obedient. Again, they're bringing their, their animal. And, uh, and it took many months to do all of this. So they're there to, to sacrifice their animal. The opportunistic uh, saw this as a way to make a financial killing in playing off of the unsuspected, uneducated Gentiles that would show up, the travelers from around the known world at that time. Jews were required to bring a spotless oxen or a spotless lamb, or if you were really poor, you could sacrifice a dove in order to have your sins forgiven. Before entering the temple uh, area, there is the outer courts. It's the, it's the court of Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles were allowed to assemble. They were not allowed to go into where the Jews um, worshipped. But this court of Gentiles, this is what we're going to talk about this morning, had become a place, a den of thieves. So they, they would bring their animal, and they would have it inspected by a priest. And um, there was great profit in rejecting animals and telling these uh, Gentile converts that, uh, you know, your animal, it just isn't up to par. Almost, but not, you know, God's not going to, he's not going to accept this. But for a, a little bit of money, I can point you to one of my sheep over here. You know, maybe $500 in today's money. You could have one that he will accept. Get rid of that animal. And in fact, you know, why don't I take him off your hands? And uh, we'll use him as a trade-in. And you can have this pure animal over here. God will surely take this one. These guys were lying thieves. These poor Gentiles were, okay, all right, I, I don't want to offend God. And then, of course, they would show up with, um, uh, with money that was Roman, Roman money. The money changers would take the visitors' Roman coins, 
brought to pay the temple tax and exchanged them into Israeli shekels uh, for, of course, another fee, oftentimes ripping off the foreigners in the process. Jews were not allowed to bring the Roman coins in and, and put them in the offering. That was a, that's a blasphemy. That has Caesar's picture on it. We don't worship him. So they, they had their own coins that, to use for that purpose. That's why these guys show up with Roman coins. And they go, hey, uh, let me give you, uh, let me, you know, we've got to trade this out here. And they would just rip them off. All this was done in the courtyards of the Gentiles right in front of, just steps away from God's house. And Jesus burned with righteous indignation and passion against this vile practice when he first witnessed it. We too often view Jesus as the gentle lamb, but he is anything but that in this story. When I was growing up, I remember just as a little boy going to see my grandpa and grandma. And uh, you've probably all seen this painting over the years. But it's a painting. Uh, she'd had two paintings in her house. One was Jesus knocking on the door, holding, holding the lantern. And then the other painting is he's sitting on a rock, and he's got this lamb in his arms. And he has this, you know, just, just this placid, gentle look on him. You know, it looks like he would never speak sharply to anyone or confront anyone. He's just this, you know, and he is a, a, a peaceful man, a loving man. But there's a side to him that we're going to get shown here. Jesus was and is. He's a man's man who stands up for the downtrodden. He stands up for the outcast. He stands up for the widow. He stands up for the children we're going to read about. He stands up for all of the orphans. And he doesn't do so in a placid manner here. We're about to see him in full righteousness and glorious anger against those that would disrespect the Lord's house and the Lord's people. Don't mess with the shepherd's sheep. And when I said, wrote those words this week, I'm often reminded that in the Bible it says, let not many of you become pastors. Let not many of you become teachers. Because you will be held to a higher standard. You will be held to a higher level of judgment. Why is that true? Because in the office of pastor and teacher, I am teaching the Word of God. I am feeding God's sheep and I better do it right. I better do it according to the Word of God. I better do it with love in my heart. I'm taking care of His sheep. And one day I'm going to stand before Him. And I get chills every time I say that. I don't take it lightly at all. Verse 15, When He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Listen, don't expect RCC to start selling prayer claws anytime soon here. Don't hold your breath for any cash machines to show up on the wall. Not going to happen. At RCC, the worship is pure. The Word is preached faithfully. And the coffee is free. I just thought I'd throw that in. I'm not going to charge for that. Verse 17, Then His disciples remembered that it was written in the Old Testament, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That me should be capitalized in your Bible. Talking about the Lord here. That's from Psalm 69.9. David would write those words as prophetic that described the passion of the coming Messiah. 
He would come 800 years later. That would be a fulfillment. These guys, watch what he does in this driving out of all these thieves. With, and they remember the Scripture in the moment. They remember, oh, that's right. He'll have a zeal for his Lord's house that's unmatched. He confronted these people. Last week we saw the metaphor of Israel having run out of wine. Now we see the glory of God has run out of the temple as well, and it's replaced with thieves and con artists. Israel has fallen. Note here that churches who rewrite the Bible, those pastors who are redefining sin, redefining sexuality, redefining marriage, and redefining even life in the womb itself, ought to take note here on how God feels when church leaders veer off course in the name of being relative, in the name of being woke, and in the name of being progressive. The Bible doesn't need to be rewritten or reimagined. As one pastor said uh, in an interview on television, I almost jumped out of my skin. He said, the Bible just needs to be reimagined because we're faced with a different set of circumstances today. Well, how about this? The Bible doesn't need to be rewritten. It doesn't need to be reimagined. It needs to be reread and it needs to be obeyed faithfully by each one of us. And that pastor will stand before God and give a reason, but he won't have one. We need to stand with the same biblical zeal that Jesus Christ had. We need to stand up and say, this is wrong. Uh-uh, this isn't, this, God does not approve of this. And I don't care what faith or, or branch that you believe, the Word of God has the last say, period, period. Zeal for your house has eaten me up, and zeal for many in Christ's church is eating him up today. By carrying out this aggressive act against the hypocritical religious leaders and Pharisees, Jesus was drawing a line in the sand, declaring war against these false teachers. He stood up in front of his sheep and said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And this eventually led to his death by the very men that he stood in front of and confronted we see Jesus' passion in example number one. We see Him cleaning out the temple. Example number two, we see Jesus laying down His life. You say, wait a minute, this is only chapter two. He doesn't die until you know, chapter 18, 19, we get into that. And well, He's going to speak about it long before it ever happens. And here He's going to give kind of a metaphor of that. He lays down His life. Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, Jesus, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? He, he drove out the money changer. He drove out all the animals. And he said, you won't do this. The house of the Lord is a house of prayer. You will not do this in my father's house. And they said, oh, okay, your father's house? What sign do you have to show us that you have the authority to do this? That's a really good question, actually. You know, they're, they're holding him accountable, and that's not a bad thing. We should hold people accountable when they come to speak or when they make a claim about something. Show me in the Bible where that's true, that you just made this claim. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But So Jesus answers in 19, and he said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> there's your sign. Verse 20. 
Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Now, to this point, it had taken them 46 years to build the temple. It won't be finished for another 20. It's three quarters of the way being built. They'd been working on this for 46 years. What are you talking about? In three days, you're going to raise this temple up. Verse 21, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Can you imagine in the upper room, the conversation? Do you remember? Man, that was like almost three years ago. Do you remember when he said the temple, he was going to destroy this temple, I'll raise it up? In the, he was talking about that. That's cool. Jesus' metaphor of his body being the temple of God went right over their heads, as lots of things he said did. Old Testament Scripture which they were well acquainted with, spoke of the coming Messiah as a man acquainted with grief, acquainted with sorrow, that his body would be pierced, that he, you know, signifying the kind of death that he would have. And yet, they didn't see any of this. It just went right over their head. Why? I think it was willful ignorance. Because if the Messiah is here, there's no need for the Pharisees. They need to step down. We've got the Messiah. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.